Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We take a couple of weeks or so to listen back to them and then we get together to have a good old discussion. This time we're on episode 20, which is Street Legal, released in June 1978. So hello, Rich. Good to see you again. Yeah, hello, mate. Good to see you as well. I'm. Uh, we probably ought to say that we are just at the start of October of 2022 with this one. So we are very much looking forward to seeing Bob Dylan in concert later on this month. We will do a couple of special episodes in conjunction with that. But uh, yeah, for, for, for now, it's, it's street legal, isn't it? It's street legal back in 1978. So on that note... When was the first time that you got into street legal? I'm guessing it wasn't 1978 for you, Rich. No, mate, I was born in 1978. You know, I'm a, a couple of years younger than your good self, I believe. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, no, I wasn't. 13 months. <laughs> That's two years in old money. So, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't listening to this as far as I'm aware in 1978, but who, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I... Do you know what? I knew very little about this album at all. Uh, a mate of mine, when I was about 19, I think, gave me a tape, like a mixtape, actually, of Bob Dylan's stuff. And I was traveling around the States at the time um, and it had Senor on it. And so I, re- I know and really love Senor. I don't think I'd if I'd heard any of the other songs on on this, which I may well have done. They hadn't made a huge impression on me previously. So I kind of. I had this as a pretty much it was an experience like listening to a new album. What about you? Well, again, this is one of those that I had on cassette uh, way back in the day, which by which I mean uh, the early to mid 90s uh, when I was first getting into Bob Dylan. I think this is one that I have returned to a lot over the years, even though I've always thought it's quite an uneven album. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for it. In my sort of personal internal Bob Dylan universe, I'd tend to bracket it with New Morning and Planet Waves, um, both in terms of sort of the overall level. I think they're, those albums are, are both, all, all three of those albums, I think, are sort of on the second tier of, of Bob Dylan greatness, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of, they're, they're kind of challenging for top four, but they're never <laughs> going to make it into the Champions League, are they? They're that sort yeah, of- never quite getting there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right, like uh, David O'Leary or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I think in terms of quality, they've got that sort of uh, similarity. But also for me personally, I felt like they were records that were a little bit under the radar. I've spoken about this before. So obviously, even as somebody coming to Bob Dylan completely cold in the 90s, those records like Blood on the Tracks and Blonde on Blonde were extremely well known. These weren't quite the same. And there were, there were things that I could discover for myself and, and enjoy. So yeah, I, I bracket it together with those two records. But the other really important thing about this album, I think, for me, when I was first listening to Bob Dylan, is it's the last one before we get into the Christian rock era. And when I was 18 or 19, the thought of somebody playing Christian rock was just complete anathema. So I I don't think I even engaged with those records for a good decade or so uh, on principle, which I I think now looking back was, was arguably a mistake. Uh, but we'll get into that in the next few episodes. Um, so certainly, yeah, it, this was this is one of those that I enjoyed from uh, from many many years ago. Although, as I say, I do still think it is uh, quite uneven, uh, which we'll no doubt get into. Yeah, I think so. And I think we, what we'll try and do on this occasion is we're going to 
we're going to deal a lot more with the songs. We have at times strayed off into kind of historical stuff, political stuff. We'll do a little bit about the background of this record, but I think that this is very much one about the songs. Um, we are, of course, a podcast called America. Uh, sorry, Bob. <laughs> what are we called? Yeah, <laughs> we are called Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. And we do try and make Shakespearean links. Now, I think there are certain Bob Dylan records where this is much, much easier. There are others where it's slightly more challenging. This is one where we've got a few ideas and we will explore those, but we're not going to kind of hammer the the immortal bard links quite as much as we might have done um, on other occasions. There will be plenty more of that to come in future, though. So so don't worry. Thank goodness. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. OK, well, talking of background then, mate, I mean, what, what have we got to say if we've got to kind of put this in a in a nutshell kind of thing? Well, I suppose the first thing is to say that we are a couple of years on from Desire now. and. Although on this podcast, we don't like to dwell on the sort of personal events in Bob Dylan's life. We are very much looking at this from a point of view of engaging with the records as fans of the music. Probably is worth saying that a lot had been going on. The divorce from his first wife had been finalised, I think, by the time this record came out. Certainly, it was very much in its death throes. Also, he'd had a rather bruising experience with his film, Ronaldo and Clara, being released. He'd done a lot of the donkey work himself hadn't he, in terms of the editing and the promotion of that film. And so the savaging that it got on release must have hurt, particularly on a personal level. And so although it has been two years since his last uh, studio record, it's not as though it's been a quiet time in his life leading up to this. But the the, the sort of a, the more immediate background is that most of these songs are thought to have been written uh, in Minnesota in the summer of 1977. And by the winter of 77, he was getting ready to record. But I think the thing that's most striking about this album, the thing that was really noticeable to everybody on release and is still a talking point today, is the fact that he really went for the big band, (laughs) easy for me to say, the big band sound on this album, which he tried to do on Desire, and it hadn't quite worked out, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago. But this time, he really has nailed it, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean... It's it is. It's not. I mean, not wall of sound, but it's um, yes. It's definitely that big band band sound, and I think that that perhaps divides people a little bit because I actually think um, if you think in 1977, 1978, you've got sort of very fat period Elvis and Elvis's death kind of thing, but he had that kind of big sound, and I, I there's almost more akin to that at times than kind of desire, but. Um, and it's definitely divided people. I mean, I, we must mention the response we had on Twitter for this one, which was remarkable. And thank you very, very much for all of those people that have um, taken the time to kind of give suggestions. As always with Bob Dylan, massive differences of opinion. Um, we asked kind of what were your, your favourite songs? And uh, well, that kind of opened up a not a hornet's nest, but it was just kind of it just shows that people kind of approach these albums so, so differently. And there are certain songs that people love. There are other songs that people kind of not loathe, but are obviously not quite so keen on. And it's it's amazing, really, that you've got that kind of richness of discourse. And so, yeah, I can't remember where I was going with that one. I've done a very bad job of explaining it, but thank you is what we're trying to say there. Back over to you. Rescue me, mate. Dig me out of this hole. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, everybody. It was uh, great to see that discussion going on on Twitter. I did try to approach this scientifically and make a little tally chart of all the, the names of the songs that people 
said were their favourites on this album. I'm going to reveal the results of that later, so <laughs> you'll have to wait and see. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Rich, on the Elvis point. I, I, I get that feeling as well. There's a famous record, what is it, Aloha from Hawaii, where he's got the full band going on, hasn't he? And all the various TV specials from that sort of era as well. And you get a sense of that on this record, I think. I think you do. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I love that, you know, that period of Elvis I think it sounds fantastic for all of its massively overblownness it's I mean it's powerful stuff isn't it it's really quite astonishing and I think I think there's two points here that I think are worth mentioning before we launch into the songs from my point of view anyway is that one this point in music history for Bob Dylan we're approaching it now where this isn't even halfway through his canon of course but if you're there in 1978, uh, sorry, 77, 78, he may well have been in certain people's eyes a kind of washed up has been. And I think the other thing is that time then, two years was a long time. I mean, I don't mean in a literal sense, obviously, but when you think about how music moved very, very quickly, developed very, very quickly back then, I mean, you suddenly, the, the kind of Contemporary albums are things like Marquee Moon by uh, television. The Ramones are putting stuff out. Elvis Costello, The Pistols. You've got all of this new wave kind of stuff. Then you've got things like Kraftwerk, Steely Dan, Bowie's Low, Animals by Pink Floyd. I mean, it's a shifting sort of musical landscape. And I think that you may well, had you been a quite hip listener in 1977-78 have looked upon Dylan as kind of yesterday's man really because of that because this is not and we'll talk more about this this is not something that is breaking massively new ground I don't think this is almost arguably harking back to a slightly different approach really. Yeah I think when we were talking about this a couple of days ago you said something like he's tried to make a really commercial record but he's a, a few years too late with the sound he's he's put together and I think there's something in that. Whenever I hear a saxophone on a rock record, I always think of Bruce Springsteen, of course. But you're right. This is closer to um, to Elvis and that big band sound. But you've also got another theory, haven't you, about who it might be a bit closer to? I think, yeah. I mean, I, I hear an awful lot of Van Morrison on this record. Now, I love Van Morrison, but my theory is that sort of 1970, 71, Van Morrison was probably at his sort of one of his creative peaks, shall we say, and very, very influential among his fellow musicians. And I think Bob Dylan has actually, on this record, I think he's tried to make a record that kind of sounds quite like Van Morrison. Um, we talked before, a few episodes back, how Bob Dylan kind of, it's almost like he became a genre unto himself. And he does that again in future. But I think at this moment in time, he's kind of stepped outside of that being a genre unto himself. And he's tried to almost mould his ideas with what he thinks is going to be a bit more kind of quote unquote commercial. I think the problem is that this is 1977 and he's kind of harking back to 1971. And so as a result of that, I think, again, it's sort of a bit out of its time. Um, I am perfectly willing to be shot down for this. It's a theory that I, uh, I developed while driving and listening to this. And I just thought, you know what? It's so kind of Van Morrison in my to my ears that uh, I've gone with it. But yeah, <laughs> back to you, mate, anyway. Well, I mean, whether or not he was actively influenced in that way or consciously influenced, it's certainly something that was gestating with him for a while. 
because as we said, he tried to do something similar on Desire and it hadn't worked out. He'd had his whole uh, Band of Brothers thing going on with um, the Rolling Thunder tour. Um, and he was very keen to get this band set up. Um, so he started putting the band together late on in 1977 with a view to the world tour that kicked off in 78. So we'll talk about this a lot more next time when we will be talking about uh, the Budokan record. But I think it was in January or February that they set off for Japan. Uh, then there were concerts in New Zealand and Australia. The first time he'd ever been to Japan and the first time he'd been to New Zealand, well, first time he'd been to New Zealand, but the first time he'd been to Australia since uh, 66, I think. So uh, a really big event in his, in his life and in his career. And this record was recorded in the interim between that uh, kind of Asian tour, I suppose, and him setting off for, was it England next or was it America first? I, I forget. But anyway, certainly in the April. Uh, this was recorded in Santa Monica. And, and this was um, this was the tour, sorry, mate, this is the tour when he famously played, I think it was Earl's Court, wasn't it? And the sound was, by all accounts, quite dodgy, but the gig was great. I know that Is It Rolling Bob talks quite a lot about that, or have done on some of their podcasts, certainly. Well, I mean, even in Europe, it was the first time he'd been back since 66 uh, to play shows. So it was, a, it was a massive thing for everybody involved, I think, including Dylan himself, of course. And I suppose even today, the prospect of a world tour must be quite daunting. But I think we're still in the era in 78, where logistically it must have been quite an undertaking. And certainly there was some evolution of the band between him getting it ready and rehearsing for Japan and then recording the record. He started off with Howie Wyeth on drums and Rob Stoner, both, both of whom had been on the Rolling Thunder and on Desire. But by the time of the recording, they dropped out. He also had uh, another thing that was very controversial, of course, was that as well as having this big band sound, he had the three backing singers who were on the tour and also were very prominent on the record. And that wasn't all, that hasn't always been well received, has it? No, but you know what? I think that that is one of my favourite aspects of this because I just think that I don't like the saxophone but I do like the kind of gospel-like sound that we've got going on here. And I, so I think that from my own sort of point of view, I think that kind of rescues this a little bit for me, having those those backing singers. But yeah, it, it is quite a departure, isn't it? Because this is sort of Dylan in a sort of soulful, quite funky sort of mood, at least it's in sound kind of terms. And yeah, I mean, it is. It's quite a departure, isn't it? Because we talked previously on Hard Rain. It was that just kind of that onslaught of sound where it was all quite mushy and muddy and everything like this. And this is quite, I mean, the, the parts here, big band sound, yes, but they are quite well thought out, aren't they? There's, there's some, I think the arrangements are, the arrangements are pretty good. It's just that they are very kind of Vegas period Elvis, as we've said already. I think that's right. And I think, as we always say, one of the reasons for us doing this podcast, apart from keeping us off the streets, is that we want to try to recreate the feeling of experiencing Bob Dylan's career in sequence. But of course, we've come to these records all higgledy-piggledy in various orders, having had the privilege of being born much later and, and being able to do so. So for me, for example, hearing Senor or uh, Where Are You Tonight, I just thought, well, that's Bob Dylan. I didn't think oh, Bob Dylan doesn't do the big band sound or Bob Dylan doesn't have backing singers. I mean, I think by the time I heard Street Legal for the first time, I would already have heard Biograph, which means I would have heard that version of Caribbean Wind with the, the backing singers doing the whooshing effects. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Once you've heard that, 
strictly legal is pretty tame in comparison, isn't it? So, you know what I mean? So I think that we perhaps don't feel that level of shock or level of newness that his regular audience would have felt in 1978. I think you're right. It was a very big departure and it was consciously a departure for him too. It's interesting that you mention, isn't it, the um, the idea of us having been born much later and so therefore kind of being able to deal with his career and sort of to some extent contextualise things. I think if you were a kid now getting into Bob Dylan, it'd be mind-blowing because you could put one of those like Spotify shuffle playlists on and you could have everything from a tub-thumping protest singer to Caribbean Wind and the modern stuff and the kind of... Uh, the sort of great American songbook era and everything like that. And and it would just, without any kind of, you don't need any kind of context, but I mean, it's like he's four or five different people, isn't it really? I think the the point when, when we both approach Bob Dylan is quite interesting though, because of course, and we've said this before, I think monetary concerns were, were quite key in how I discovered Bob Dylan, because you could get hold of the older stuff more cheaply from record stores and stuff like that the sort of well the the 80s stuff no one really was that fussed about buying when i was uh, when i was of that kind of age but things like um street legal they i always remember them being more expensive so you could pick up like a discounted highway 61 or something like that on cd but then um street legal be more expensive and so as a result of that that's i think that's another thing that influences as an adolescent your kind of buying habits really doesn't it but but there we go i know what i was going to say just very very quickly i said that we we deal with the shakespearean link and the one thing i was going to say is that i think bob dylan at the end of the day he's always a businessman and so he's always got that idea of um how to make money how to be a success how to kind of engage and please an audience and i think that he's genuinely trying at this point in time to kind of meet them halfway uh, that's the impression i get i think this is a much more accessible album than some of the ones that have gone previously to some degree and i think that's something i mean this might again be a little bit tenuous but shakespeare was capable and obviously capable of doing this he was a businessman out and out and he would kind of bend and change direction according to who his masters were in many regards. I mean, you look at a play like Macbeth, you've got a recently ascended James I who's madly into to witches and witchcraft, and hence the fact that Macbeth, lo and behold, uh, deals with witches uh, very famously, obviously. And I think that this, this I mean, I'm not saying that, that Dylan's doing anything with Macbeth like witches here, but I, what I think he is doing is just trying to he's very conscious i think of his audience here we've we've talked before about how bob dylan was at a point in his career previously where it was almost like he could do whatever he wanted to because he was bob dylan and i just wonder there's uh, quite a few of the songs in this i think are imbued with a degree of uncertainty and i wonder if if some of that is maybe connected with his own uncertainties about his place in the world his place in the musical landscape certainly and so i wonder if he's kind of almost like being a bit faltering here, a little bit hesitant, kind of just not quite thinking that he's going to plough his own furrow, but instead that he's going to sort of, he's going to try and meet meet the listener, I suppose. That's a big rambling thing. Sorry, I've gone on there a bit, but there we go. <laughs> well, we have got the treacherous young witches on this record, of course, so you can have that one for free. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I think 
there's a lot of experimentation going on on this record, isn't there? And I think that some of it works really well and some of it doesn't. I agree with you. I think the backing singers do work really well on the album. And actually, the arrangements generally are really gorgeous for the most part. That being said, though, in terms of it being an accessible album, I think those points are in favour of that argument. But lyrically, it's very, very dense. I find a lot of it impenetrable, to be perfectly honest, as we'll discover as we go through the individual tracks. But where you can get glimpses of, I suppose, clarity, there's a lot of bitterness, a lot of doubt, as you say. And so it's not something that you would necessarily, I think, recommend to someone, you know, lightheartedly. You'd want someone to be prepared, I think, before they jumped into this. They wouldn't, it wouldn't be something that certainly wouldn't be the first Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan album I'd hand to somebody. No, I would agree with that. And I, I think I agree with what you're saying about the lyrics, because I'm conscious of the fact that this one I've listened to for choruses. I've listened to because I like the sound, but I couldn't quote you verbatim loads and loads of lyrics like I could do with loads of other Bob Dylan albums. Notable exception being Senor, which uh, has always kind of been a bit tattooed on my brain. But um, yeah, I think lyrically it is. It's very, very dense. And that's the thing, of course, that saves it from being, I know I'm contradicting myself already, but that's the thing that obviously saves it from being a kind of commercial hey uh, here you go guys when uh, when when you think about lyrically what's going on which is quite impenetrable shall we uh, shall we launch into some songs then mate shall we uh, see what's going on with these well yeah but just before we do i think it's worth pointing out that while we're talking about the sound i guess that we've both been listening to the remaster which i think was put out in 99 or something a long time ago now but still recently by the standards that we're dealing with on this podcast and that did address many of the issues that were originally uh, sort of associated with this album in terms of a muddy mix and so on but I think it is worth just pointing out for anyone who hasn't gone back and listened to this for for a few years that it does I think it does stand up very well this the new version of it that I've got on my shelf on CD but which I certainly didn't have 25 years ago the arrangements do work really well they are quite clear and I think Dylan's voice comes through a lot of as, as you say a lot of clarity separating the elements that allow you to enjoy all of them whereas the older version of it was much more like a muddy wash of sound that didn't really do a lot of justice to the arrangements yeah I think I'd go along with that and it's interesting that you mentioned his voice because I think we've got a new Bob Dylan voice on this one and I think we are pointing the way to the 80s uh we won't sort of talk about the 80s today but i think i think i'm right in saying that people are a little bit down on the 80s bob dylan uh kind of output and and particularly his singing um in the 80s there have been criticisms leveled suggesting that he's not really trying i think that this is a new voice on this but it does definitely sound like he's trying i mean i've i've said before that i believe when bob dylan is like singing with conviction he sounds great. And uh, I, I think he's certainly singing with conviction on this. Okay. You kind of offside flagged me for trying to leap into the songs on that one. Should we, should we try it again? Cause I think we ought to talk about how this one starts and how this one ends. This is something that I forget now who it was who mentioned it on Twitter, but I mean, it goes in with a bang and it certainly does not go out with a whimper, does it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it was uh, Phil T. Listener who said that he thought this was possibly the finest bookend on any album. Uh, Marcus Marsden also agreed it was one of the best album closers. But I think we had a lot of people saying that they thought these two tracks were were outstanding highlights. And if I can be permitted to reveal 
the results of my tally chart now. Uh, oh, please I will, do, please do. I will reveal. I mean, uh, we, we, we mentioned Macbeth earlier. It kind of ties in with my notion that anything mathematical is basically numerical witchcraft. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit back and, and watch the numbers roll now. It's like a, the old-fashioned <laughs> vidi printer on uh, on uh, on grandstand. This okay? What are the numbers? Or or election <laughs> night in November two thousand. <laughs> yeah. So well, we had changing of the guards. Obviously, the opening track and where are you tonight? Uh, the closing track. Both of those were very well supported and Senor was the third one that uh, also uh, featured. So unsurprisingly, those three songs got the most love. But actually, every single track on here got at least two mentions, which just goes to show, goes to prove the point you were making earlier about people enjoying these records in different ways. But certainly, Changing of the Guards and Where Are You Tonight were, were two of the highlights for most people. And I definitely agree with that. So shall we dive in with changing of the guards, Rich? Yeah, let's do it. Let's. Uh, I mean, let's let's hear your thoughts on it then, mate. Because I know that you uh, you've you've obviously listened to this more over the years than I have. So I'm going. That's not a hospital pass. It's just a. Uh, Says let you. Me, let me respond and see if I can say something clever in response. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll break cover straight away and say that this would be my choice of favourite track off the record. I do adore it. There's a great live version that I discovered for the first time while we were researching in inverted commas this uh, this uh, podcast, uh, which is from Italy, I think, in uh, towards the end. No, from Nashville um, towards the end of '78. Uh, but there's also a great version by Patti Smith, which is quite recent. And I, I, there's, there's so much I like about this song. But I suppose the first thing I wanted to say is we get the fade in, don't we? And I always think with songs and particularly records that fade in it's almost like it's gently beckoning you into a world that already exists or a conversation that's already happening and you really get that feeling with the way that changing of the guards just sort of swells into this full band performance that really grabs you by the lapels and draws you into the record but i love the fact that despite that when dylan's voice comes in it's still very much like that crack that pistol shot almost like the opening of like a rolling stone when he comes in with that 16 years and then we immediately get the backing singers echoing it it's a real explosive start to the song and i think it's a tremendously powerful opening just that first few seconds where we get that swell and then that pistol shot of the, the first dylan vocal yeah and i think if we go back to 1977 78 when we're when we're listening to this this is not like anything else is it that we've we've had if you're a bob dylan listener who's got all of his records on the shelf up until this point this is this is something different isn't it i think we've never had the fade in and we've never had the backing vocals like this and so i think that this is going to be it's going to kind of almost take your breath away a little bit isn't it what's it about then mate because <laughs> <laughs> i i mean we could read this in loads and loads of of, of different ways i don't think that he sounds like he's necessarily in a very good place. I kind of go along with the idea of this changing of the guard. If you look at the musical landscape, I wonder, is he, is he feeling like he's a man out of time at this moment? And um, is it sort of, I mean, there have been some people that have suggested it's kind of like a reincarnation thing, but I wonder if it's more a tone of kind of resignation than reincarnation. But as with any Bob Dylan song, we know that we'll never really know what it's about. And we know that there's a myriad kind of possibilities, but 
That's kind of how I read it. What about you? Well, so many possible interpretations, absolutely. I think that there's, there's so much to unpick. Well, just on what you said there, I always find the last verse to be, I don't know, weirdly ambiguous because the image of, um, what is it, peace will come, and then the image of their death retreating between the king and the queen of swords, it's ostensibly, I suppose, quite a, a redemptive or at least a positive end to the song. But you've also got uh, stuff about the false idols falling, and it, it's it's very it's very Book of Revelations for me. So it's not exactly a happy ending, even though you've got that kind of uh, redemptive element to it. So, you know, one of the themes that we do get in this album, for sure, all the way through, is this, this vaguely apocalyptic thread. It rears its head towards the end of Changing of the Guards, for sure. Um, some people see the switch to the third person and this mysterious uh, character who um, marches in and, and starts off by saying, gentlemen, uh, you know, and you've got to get ready for elimination. Some people see that as a messianic figure. And I could go along with that as an interpretation for sure. But it all plays into this apocalyptic feeling. And then you've got the, the opening where he's talking about those 16 years. And of course, it had been 16 years since his career started. So it's easy to think of it as him really sort of taking stock. And perhaps, as you say, perhaps it's a point of reincarnation or perhaps he's in the mindset he's in. Perhaps he's thinking of it as a as a full stop. And of course, in hindsight, knowing as we do, that slow train is around the corner. Uh, you can really read a lot into it in terms of where his mind was and uh, what he was open to experiencing quite soon. I think that'll do me for the time being. But um, Do you want to respond yeah. to that? Well, I mean, I've, I've got a theory about this album, which is that he was not, I don't think, sat there speeding away on a typewriter when he's writing this. This wasn't the kind of blonde-on-blonde blonde slash... Uh, Highway 61 style of writing. I remember reading years ago about how Leonard Cohen had kind of just carried a notebook around when he'd been writing Hallelujah and he would just kind of like endlessly revise and reshape and stuff like that. And I think I kind of wonder if Bob Dylan might have done aspects of this with these particular songs because I don't necessarily think they make sense in a linear kind of fashion. It's almost like, oh, yeah, that's a good verse. Stick that one in there. Oh, I quite like that. Let's switch that line around or whatever. And it's not, it's kind of not narrative in the same way, is it? And uh, and so that's that's where where I think we're, we're, we're kind of at with this. And I think that's why it's quite difficult to ascribe any kind of definite meaning to a lot of these songs. But go well, on, yeah. Yeah, just on that, I'm going to appeal to authority and say that Michael Gray has called this lyric opaque. So we're in good company uh, when it comes to, to taking that view. But I did like a couple of views of the, the lyric, which I came across while reading about this. There's a fellow called Scott Bunn who uh, has a website called Recliner Notes, and he has a, a little piece about changing the guards. I think he actually did um, his 80 favourite Bob Dylan songs, and, and this was one of them, obviously, a couple of years ago, looking at Bob Dylan's 80th uh, birthday. But what he said about this was, the feeling one has listening to changing of the guards is similar to the feeling after a particularly significant and weighty dream. It must mean something because one's centre has become uncentred. And I thought that was such a lovely way of putting it. It is very dreamlike, isn't it? And you feel as though there's some, there must be some meaning freighted in it because of the way it makes you feel. 
but you can never quite put your finger on it. And the more you try to, the more it seems to recede into the distance. Yeah, it's that kind of not unattainable, kind of very discombobulating kind of thing. Those are that's a lovely way of putting it. Did he have anything to say about Knee Pony? Because I think that's not the greatest song. I don't know if there's anyone <laughs> going to say anything as beautiful about Knee Pony. I mean, well, well, I'm certainly not. I'll, I'll put it that uh, way. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of it's a bit of a blues cliche rehash kind of. Um, I almost wonder if he's. I almost wonder if he's trying to shock. Yeah, I mean, the blues is obviously filled with innuendos, and this feels like a song that's trying to do that, but. He's a bit too old to shock, although I remember kind of thinking that at the time, I think he's like 36 when this comes out. Is he 36 or 37? That's quite young, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, but we, we like to think it is. But it's old enough to know that New Pony is not a great song, surely. You think that? Uh... <laughs> but I think New Pony is a case in point. Uh, I don't like the song. I don't like the lyric, but he puts a lot of heart into the delivery. We believe him, don't we? I think and that's what saves it. Yeah, it's that. It's what saves it. We've talked about because it's it's a good performance. It's just the crap mm. song. I think is, is is where I'm going with this. Like that was what I was hinting at. But also the arrangement. I mean, the band are, are playing it, aren't they? They're really getting into it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it'd have been a lot of fun playing it in the studio. I think it'd have been a lot of fun singing it in the studio. It's just not a lot of fun to listen to, really. Um, well, it's that thing, isn't it? Because the the I mean, I love blues music. I love old blues music, particularly kind of like you sort of Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf kind of stuff. And this is just sort of somewhere between that and I don't know the kind of Clapton-y sort of approach. And I'm, I'm it, it just doesn't quite work for me. But you know, I'm sure that there are people out there who who dote on this one. But uh, and 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 good luck to them in that in in that sense. Okay. Uh, right, over to you, mate. Just before we move on from New Pony, Rich, um, probably worth pointing out that one of the one of the backing singers on the record, um, Helena Springs, she's thought to be the inspiration for the song. And of course, she also co-wrote. I think it was 19 songs with Bob Dylan. I think just before the the tour, so before the album was recorded, I could be wrong about that, but none of those songs were recorded for this album. Um, but I, I think that must have been such a strange experience to be singing the backing vocals on a song that was about you in some sense. And, and I think it probably is worth saying that the backing vocals are one of the highlights of the track, uh, much as I dislike it in general. They are They are rather affecting. Yeah, it must have been an oddity, especially considering how sort of suggestive, shall we say, some of the <laughs> uh, the lyrics are as well. It's uh, it's like an in joke that virtually everyone's in on, I think, isn't it? It's one of the <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, but shall we? Yeah, shall let's we move well, on then. Yeah. So next up, yeah, we've got no time to think. I've got a theory about this one, and I think that whenever I listen to this, it sounds like it's a uh, written for a musical. It sounds like it could have been sung by a big kind of like a show band kind of thing, you know, with a big chorus behind it. The way that the chorus sounds really, really reminds me of a kind of West End slash Broadway kind of show. Even the even the three, the the sort of the, the three, four time signature, which there is in this as well. I get the impression of of Bob Dylan kind of skipping across the stage in like a long Victorian coat, like the Artful Dodger or something. <laughs> just singing this because everything about it it just yeah with like 
really crap paintings of of like Dickensian London in the background kind of thing. That's how it sounds to me. It just sounds like a, a, a kind of chorus number from, you know, not not a very good musical, but from a musical sort of thing. It's uh, anyway. I've 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 got. I see very few redeeming features in it. I'd love to see it made into a musical, but um, <laughs> are you going to rescue it, mate? <laughs> Consider yourself the voice of a generation. Is that what we're? <laughs> Move over Hamilton. This is fucking <laughs> <of> edge. So. <laughs> I I tend to agree. Um, I, I'm trying to put the image of Bob Dylan as the artful dodger out of my my mind. But other than that, I, I tend to agree. I, I think of it as a, a failed experiment. I think really. I, I mentioned at the start that I think there's a lot of new, there's a lot of new stuff for Bob Dylan going on in this record. You know, backing singers, the arrangements, but this is him trying something new in his songwriting and, you know, more power to his elbow, but I just don't think it works. I know the track has got its fans because we, we heard them on Twitter. Uh, yeah. yeah, And I, I feel, obviously I feel a bit bad uh, kind of ridiculing some of these. I mean, I think it's, we always have this kind of reminder, don't we, that we may well be critical of some of these songs, but we still remain enormous Bob Dylan fans. And just because we're saying a song, isn't to our taste doesn't mean it hasn't got redeeming features and it it doesn't mean that we don't like what he's trying at least put it that way no and it's certainly a very ambitious song it's given its length and its complexity it's almost as though it's the centerpiece of the record but but i think that senor actually plays that role uh, i i just think it's on a different level and it, it therefore takes over as the heart of the record but this is certainly not a, a slight song. Um, I think we, we often refer to Clinton Halen uh, in this podcast, and one of his comments on this was that it includes some of the most impertinent rhymes ever attempted in popular song. I think he's probably got a point there. But I just, hand on heart, don't have any idea what the song is about. No, and... I, I, I agree. And, and I, I don't always agree with Clinton Halen. I certainly don't always agree with him, but I think I probably see where he's coming from on, on, on this one. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll give him that. <laughs> the, the, one, the one thing I would say, though. Now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. he'd have been worried otherwise. <laughs> he, he, uh, he closes his podcast app and, uh, and goes to bed happy, absolutely. Exactly. No, well, I suppose the one thing I would say about this song and, and all the songs that I, I don't really get on board with is that Bob Dylan has a funny way of worming his way into your affections over time, doesn't he? Um, the songs that I love the most today are not the ones that I loved the most 20 years ago. And if, uh, God willing, I'm spared, I'm sure there'll be different songs that I love in another 20 years. And who knows, maybe uh, No Time to Think will have revealed itself to me as a work of genius by then. Yeah, Stranger but I think, things have happened. I think that's a very good point. And I'm going to kind of just change tack slightly. Um, I think the same about Born in the USA as an album by Bruce Springsteen, I should mention, if I'm sure most of the people that are going to listen to this will know who uh, who did Born in the USA, obviously. I had, you know, I, I was surrounded by that record as a kid. And I remember listening to it in probably about the time, you know, sort of mid-90s kind of thing, and just thinking it was, it was not that great and it sounded very dated and it just sort of wasn't doing it for me at all. And I was listening to a lot of grunge and stuff like that then. Maybe that was one of the issues of the production. 
And then I listened to it again about 10 years ago, and I just thought this is an absolute work of genius. So I think it's a very important thing that we talk about context of the records when they're made, but I think the context of when you actually listen to a record is very, very important as well. And, and I think you're right. I mean, I may well somewhere down the road think that some of these are kind of my, my favourite Bob Dylan songs. Um, they do. They change all the time. They are a movable feast, for sure. Well, shall we move on to... Baby, stop crying. And um, if it's okay with you, Rich, I'd like to link this one to um, True Love Tends to Forget as well. Because I, not because I necessarily think the lyrics are connected, but I think that one of the things we find on this record that, that makes it enjoyable is that Dylan's really reveling in in finding some tunes. I mean, say what you like about these two songs, but they're, they're catchy. And Baby, Stop Crying... I think I'm right in saying to this day is his last bona fide top 20 hit in the UK. I think it's I think it hit number 13 in 1978, but it certainly was a big hit in Europe. Uh, and you can see why, can't you? Very much so. I mean, this is kind of, it's poppy. It's, I still think, I mean, both of the songs that you've mentioned here for me are very, very redolent of Van Morrison. This one really reminds me of Crazy Love by uh, Van Morrison which I believe, yeah, it's off of Moondance, the album, which is like 1970. So it kind of, I'm not sure. I either came up with this theory and then kind of retrofitted the songs that I thought they reminded me of, or it might have happened more organically than that. But um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great song. I mean, it is, it's really, really catchy. And I love the call and response uh, of the, of the vocals. I mean, it is, it's, it's just a great pop song. The other one that you mentioned there, the True Love Tends to Forget, I think, and again, I'm going to kind of bang the drum for the the Van Morrison uh, sort of analogy. I think this really reminds me of a song called Old Old Woodstock from Tupelo Honey. There's something about it. And so I, that's, I mean, my mind is made up where I think Bob Dylan was going with all of this kind of stuff. But I really like both of those original songs. And I really like what Bob Dylan does with them here as well, um, as in, as in the songs that are on this record that he has written. I, I don't mean that he's kind of covered other ones. Yeah, they are. They're, they're really catchy. They're really like brilliant arrangements and, and really good performances. I agree. I suppose lyrically, probably a little bit slighter. Well, certainly a bit slighter than um, the, the more complex songs we've talked about so far. But yeah, it shows he could, he could crank out a hit when he wanted to. And he was definitely in the mood for that here. It's one of the things that makes this record so, I don't know, so interesting, but also so difficult because you've got this, I think there's this apocalyptic thread, as we've said, there's also this kind of sense of confusion and doubt. Um, You really don't get the feeling that the singer or the songwriter is in a very happy place when you listen to the record, which makes it a difficult listen at times. But you've also got this, these quite jaunty tracks, these uh, wonderfully florid band arrangements um, and in some ways, it can be quite an enjoyable listen. So a, a bit of a curate's egg for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, we mentioned earlier on the idea of, of, of youngsters, as it were, listening to uh, to mixes and things like that on Spotify. And I think we are still very much of a generation that thinks about albums as entities unto themselves. And so I think we are trying to listen to this as an album. Whereas I think a kid now would probably just listen to some of the, the songs and say, I don't know, what, what are you guys worrying about? You know, I'll skip on the one that I like. Oh, the jaunty one's ever so nice to listen to or whatever it may be. 
And maybe, maybe Bob Dylan was just thinking of this in terms of a collection of songs in that in that kind of way. Maybe it wasn't like some voice of a generation kind of uh, message that he's trying to have like an overriding theme almost. Maybe it's just a little bit more, I'm just going to write some songs and, and, and chuck them out. Well, whether or not that was in his mind, it certainly isn't an album that's cohesive, is it, in that way? I think the band does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of time a record together. It, it's, got a, it's got a cohesive sound, hasn't it? But I do think we've got all these different lyrical and emotional themes flying all over the place. And that does make it hard to put your finger on it, on what exactly is going on. And perhaps, as you say, there isn't anything that we can really say is going on. It's, it is all these different things that, that, are, that are swirling around and conflicting with each other. And that gives the record its particular flavour. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, that's... Do we want to talk about Signor now? Um, yeah, just, dive in. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think Signor is is the sort of centerpiece here, really, of this. And and if you thought you knew what was going on with the opening track, or you thought you maybe knew what was going on with the closing track, you've then got this kind of centerpiece or a song that serves as the centerpiece of the album, which seems to bear very little resemblance to anything else on it, but is just great. It's always nice when you get kind of affirmations i suppose on twitter and robin hitchcock thank you very much for siding with us on this one um when we were suggesting the line um the uh, can you tell me where we're heading lincoln county road or armageddon i just think that is a fantastic line um, and so so did he also but it's this notion that i mean when i listened to this i i was doing a lot of traveling listening over and over to this song actually on greyhound buses on a walkman and it reminds me of places like Yuma and El Paso and stuff like that and it's kind of seared on my uh on my memory as a result but it's kind of like in a it's almost like the song has, has been applied to those places in my in my mind I, I'm almost kind of revisiting there when I hear it which is probably a bit unfair because I've not heard the rest of the album so it's just you know I know that one really well and it's got like these massively kind of evocative memories but I think it's a brilliant song. No, I don't know what it's about, but I mean, it just, it's one of those that you listen to and you think, yeah, you know what? This is something really profound here um, that he's saying. And uh, it it sounds Americanery. It sounds historic. It sounds incredibly poetic. And you just think, I just wish I knew what it was about, Bob, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you make a really good point. Uh, you get that feeling of... Um you know, the, the weight of the song and the uh, a lot of people flag up for, for sort of the apocalyptic feeling of it. But when you actually try and put your finger on where that comes from, it's not just the lyrics or even only the lyrics. It's the whole thing, isn't it? I think this is the one when I was listening back to it this time where I thought I, I really could hear that, that Elvis style big band working perfectly the way that it swells up towards uh, is it the middle eight where he starts off with there's a wicked wind the band's outstanding there it's a gorgeous arrangement i think it's probably dylan's best vocal on the on the record yeah i'd go along with that mm. but the other thing about it is as i think this was from clinton halen so giving him props again he talks about the way that the questions never get answered the, the questions of the lyrics pose but also the questions start off being asked in a in a very calm and sort of um, almost academic way. But then by the time you get to the end, uh, what's the what's the last question? 
Oh, it's um what we're waiting for, right? Yes. And he's got it. He's 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 still controlled, but he's got this almost hysterical power behind his voice when he's delivering that final line. It's like that and rage then, that's bubbling under the surface, isn't it? Absolutely. It's that's that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And it's a bad effect, I think, that, that gives it that, that apocalyptic feeling, regardless of whether you've you've remembered any of the lyrics or not. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh and then, of course, we've got the final song. I mean, we've got Is Your Love in Vain as well, which, um, what do I think about Is Your Love in Vain? I think, um, no, I, I mean, I, I think there are various Robert Johnson-y blues references that crop up on this album. There is one in the in the title track. Can't put my finger on it at the present moment. But then, then of course, you've got this one. Love in Vain, of course, was Robert Johnson, um, Delta Blues song. The song bears nothing, no resemblance to that, of course, but um, I don't think it's accidental that, that Dylan is kind of chucking in these kind of references, really. There's yeah. a lot of Robert Johnson on here, isn't there? Is it um, My Last Deal Gone Down? Yeah, 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 that's it, that's yeah. It. Well done, yeah. But yeah, I think the first thing to say about Is Your Love in Vain is, I, I, again, I think it's a really gorgeous arrangement. Um, and again, he's got he's carrying a tune, isn't he? Yes. It it puts me in mind of that Tom Waits song. Is it? I hope that I don't fall in love with you tonight. I've forgotten one of his early uh, yeah, songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. The vo- um, I mean, because the vocal, of course, is sort of post Heart Attack and Vine, which is which is yes. after this. The vocal sound, but the yeah, you're right. Actually, the arrangement is on. Is it closing time? That I, I was going to say closing time. I think it might be or Which hard Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it's you're right. It's the arrangement, and it's also the, the lyric, isn't it, uh, and the sentiment. But I suppose the difference is, well, <laughs> several differences. First, the difference I was going to mention was that with Tom Waits, you get the feeling that in this particular case, the cynicism that pervades his um his internal commentary as he's looking at this woman next to him is a facade and that actually he w- he would be falling in love with her uh, at the drop of a hat whereas with bob dylan in, on this song although we get the the punchline is that he says all right i'll take a chance actually you don't believe he's going to do any such thing and it's a much more bitter song in that way uh, and without being stereotypical about it it's a song of an older man i think probably a younger person wouldn't have come up with a lyric like this. Yeah, no, I, I'd go along with that. There's that, that, you're right, there's that cynicism, there's that, there's there's a sort of world weariness about it, isn't there? Which I, I don't think it's got the idealism that a younger kind of narrator would have, shall we say. Um, yeah. I think so. But the other thing is that even at the time when the record came out, this was one of the ones that was flagged up as being sexist, the notorious lyric, what is it? Can you cook and sew yeah make flowers grow and all of that kind of stuff yeah i mean it's yeah. i mean it does not scan at all well in in 2022 I'm, I'm not sure that it would have scanned particularly well in uh in 1978 either really i mean no was, i was um, far too young uh then to to, to <laughs> have any opinion you 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 might have i don't know mate what you'd been two then wouldn't you like, i was i was i was tuned into the sexual <laughs> politics then yeah sure <laughs> Um, but no, but, that's it's really not aged well, has it? That I mean, that's. Uh... But there's a lot of that on this record. I mean, I think New Pony, as we've talked about, is is borderline misogynistic. Um, it's certainly not not a pleasant listen. But 
this was the mindset he was in. I mean, you know, and I, I don't want to go all pop psychology, even though I'm going to. But, you know, people talk about Blood on the Tracks as being a divorce record. And we've, we mentioned how that was too pat and there's there was so much more going on. And you've got this, I think the thing about, the thing that elevates Blood on the Tracks or, or one of the many things that elevates Blood on the Tracks is you've got that pain and that uh, kind of controlled anger. Um, but you've also got the, you know, these moments of extreme tenderness and melancholy. And that's what's missing from uh, Street Legal, which I think makes it more of a divorce album. If you were going to, if you were going to label any album as a divorce album, I think this is this is much more in that space because of that. Yeah, this um, this is the kind of album where he's 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 sitting up with old Jack Daniels, isn't he? And uh, and yeah. he's kind of bemoaning what what was. I mean, I suppose, and I'm not about to defend the lyrics here, but I suppose what was quote unquote acceptable to say in nineteen in the late nineteen seventies would probably make people's skin crawl today and your hair stand up and end and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it, it maybe explains, but doesn't excuse, I suppose, would be, uh, be a way of looking at it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and I do think it's important that we don't give these things a pass. And just if I can get on my hobby horse for a little bit, yeah, I, no, it, it's, it does annoy me. I mean, particularly when, let's say, uh, let's say men of the right um, try to, rationalize past behavior by saying oh it was the 1990s it was the 1980s it was the 1970s things were different then well no they weren't uh, and this song was flagged for that reason back then um yeah that's probably all we need to say about it isn't it should we talk about the closing track then yeah let's do that so yeah. i think robert shelton when in his book when he talks about this album he flags up where are you tonight as the, the standout track i think his his line on this was it's got the sweep of like a rolling stone which is one of many wonderful lines in his his writing about yeah. bob dylan we've already mentioned that uh, we had the conversation on twitter about the, the best opening and closing combo in uh, in bob dylan uh, in the bob dylan canon I, I do think like a rolling stone desolation row have got to be contenders but this and changing of the guards are certainly up there um what, what are your thoughts on this one rich I mean, this to me has all of the great hallmarks of like fat period Elvis we were talking about earlier. I think it's just, it's got a real kind of pomp to it. And there's a kind of, uh, there's a swagger, isn't there? And some of the arrangements on this, I think you've got a really confident band. And I think it, this one really comes through. It's very, very soulful. I agree. I, um Highway 61, sort of like a Rolling Stone and Desolation Road. I don't think you can really compare them as opening and closing tracks, can you? Because they're almost like a different, a different universe. But um, yeah, from a, a purely kind of um, album track listing kind of way of looking at things, I think these are, they're both great. And I think that this is a as a closing track is is just fantastic. I mean, all of the things that we've talked about: great playing, great arrangement, really really good vocal performance, and yeah, I mean, and it's really funky, isn't it, as well? That's the other thing. We, we One of the things that we kind of criticised, I suppose, uh, Hard Rain for was the kind of muddy sort of meanderings, um, for want of better words. But this is just tight, isn't it? It's got a real drive to it, a real groove to it. And, I, yeah, I think what a great song. Absolutely. And I think it also functions as a, as a really 
well, it functions really well as, a, as an album closer, for sure. And in retrospect, we can see it as the, the closing of another one of these little mini eras in Bob Dylan's career. Um, I think when we get to Slow Train, we'll talk more about the, um, uh, I suppose, the continuities between this record and that one. Uh, I don't think it's as simple as saying that this closes the door on one era and Slow Train opens the door on another. In fact, I think we talked about this a little bit when we did Hard Rain, didn't we? There are these threads that, that link Hard Rain, this and Slow Train. But leaving that to one side, yeah, it's a marvellous song. Just for, on a personal level, this was the one that grabbed me straight away when I first listened to the records. Uh, many years ago. I think you're right. It's, it is the funkiness of it. It's just a marvellous driving arrangement uh, yeah, before you really, even get to the lyrics. Really good drums. And this is one of those that you could, you could dance to the, I mean, no, I'm not going to dance to it. No, no one needs to see me dancing. I mean, <laughs> and just because I think I can dance, the jury's out on whether I can. But um, this is just one of those songs. That if this came on in a, well, it's a long time since I've been to a nightclub, but you know what I'm saying. You can you can imagine that this would be playing in a, in a movie, for example, and people would dance to it, wouldn't they? It's got that kind of groove, I think, which um, which you don't often say that about Bob Dylan songs, really, um, or ones that have gone prior to this. I don't think. No, you don't, and I certainly do dance around my kitchen to this, so that proves your point. <laughs> Just getting onto the lyrics, though. I mean, it's got one of those great opening lines doesn't it um it's so evocative there's a long distance train rolling through the rain and then we're straight into it i think dylan himself probably worth saying actually that dylan's always been quite kind about street legal generally he's flagged it a couple of times over the years as an album he was pleased with but one of the things that he did mention was that when he's been questioned about um you know his uh the, the, the personal content of his lyrics, to what extent they're autobiographical and all of that. He's, he's flagged up the, the last couple of verses of this song and the way in which it's all in there, this, this idea of, you know, the greatest enemy a man can have is uh, the enemy within, wrestling with your twin and all of that. And I, I think the lyric here is, it's, it's still in the same sort of genre, I suppose, as what he'd started to do on Blood on the Tracks in terms of, we get the sense of this collage-like construction, don't we? It's very image-heavy. There's a narrative running through it, certainly, but you wouldn't ever like to say for sure, well, this is the sequence of that narrative. You can sort of put things in different orders. No, um, it's got a tangled up in blue kind of feel about it. Tangled that. up in blue, I think so, absolutely. And again, I, I find it so curious because this would have been one of the songs that I absolutely loved in the first, I don't know, two or three years of listening to Bob Dylan. So for me, this is archetypal Bob Dylan. But I think it's worth remembering that this sort of stuff, he's only been doing this sort of stuff really since perhaps arguably Planet Waves or Put On The Tracks. And even those really dense image heavy songs from his acoustic period and from his, uh, you know, from Blonde On Blonde, they're, they're, they're very image rich, but they're not in the same sort of collage style as this no so yeah i just think it works really well as a as a closer to the record but as you say it's just also just a fantastic song and a fantastic performance it is you could listen to this without really bothering about the lyrics and you could just enjoy the chorus and i think the first few times i listened to it i probably did just that really um which might not necessarily be the case with a lot of his sort of previous output i suppose well i think we're, we're probably almost on the last thoughts then aren't we mate actually this is uh 
Do you want to launch in or shall I? Do you want to heads or tails? I'll uh, I'll dive in for a change. Yeah, I, I I've enjoyed listening back to this album. I think that's definitely the starting point. But I've probably enjoyed it less than I thought I would, simply because uh, it's been an album that I've gone back to many times over the years. But I think what I've realised is that I tend to dip into this album more than I do some of the others. Um, I mentioned at the start, but I put it on the same level as New Morning. New Morning is an album that I would play all the way through. I think Street Legal, I've tended to be dipping in, changing the guards. Where are you tonight, senor? And the effect of listening to it all the way through, particularly on a loop, as we have been doing, is quite disconcerting. Uh, there's, there's so much... I'm not going to say negative energy, because that's the wrong thing, but there's so much to just decenter you, going back to what we were talking about, that lovely quote um, about changing of the guards. It, it's an album that just sort of shifts you away from your, uh, your centre and leaves you feeling uh, a little bit weird at the end of it, I think. So for that reason, I don't find it necessarily a totally enjoyable listen, although there is certainly a great deal to enjoy in the album. Yeah, I think I'd go along with that. I mean, my take on it, I enjoyed it as an album. I think that it's a conventional album, this, in the sense that it is a collection of songs. I don't think it's necessarily got any great overriding sort of idea behind it. And I think we've come to kind of expect almost that Bob Dylan will almost always present us with this kind of message or whatever. I think he's just tried to make a a good album. I think the only problem with it is that he's made a great album here for like 1971, but we're in 1977. And I think that that was why the, when it was initially released, there were differences of opinion, weren't there? There were people who maybe felt like it, it was an album out of time. But on, on overall, I've enjoyed certainly uh, about half the tracks on here. I've, I've really, really enjoyed. And as, as an experience, I think it's been really, really interesting, certainly. Well, that you've does remind a, me. You've got a last, last thought. Last, <laughs> last thought, yes. Um, because, of course, the charge that was levelled at him in 78 was that this was the road to Las Vegas. And of course, I think we've probably quite enjoyed the fact that it's the road to Las Vegas, uh, listening back to it this time. But people's perspectives in 1978 and what they wanted from Bob Dylan were probably quite different. Just before, just before we do wrap up, though, Rich, I did just want to put this argument to bed. Uh, what, what would be your, your favourite track on uh, this album, since we had such a great Twitter discussion about it? I've seen you all the way. Yeah, there's no, there's no question. But again, I think that it gets an unfair leg up purely because of the fact that I've known that track for 20 odd years and it's very, very kind of evocative in my mind. And I can't unpeel all of that and, and sort of look at the other tracks uh, sort of objectively in the same way. But um, closely followed by the opening and closing track. What about you, mate? Well, I would go with uh, Changing of the Guards. Uh, for many, many years, it was Where Are You Tonight? But over the last couple of years, Changing of the Guards has been there. Uh, coming up on the inside rail and that'll be the one for me now <laughs> well thank you very much indeed for listening as always please do pose any questions that you may have any thoughts or suggestions we are on twitter search at dylan american and we will look forward to you joining us next time for live from the budokan well it'll be live from cardiff won't it i think most likely absolutely okay so just ignore what i just said so hopefully <laughs> hopefully live from cardiff 
Live from the Budokan will certainly be in the pipeline, mate. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely.